I'm starting it. Ooh, wow. Okay, I am starting it. So, hello, climate change. Waking up and taking action one conversation at a time. And this is my second conversation with Angie Seth. But this time we're in person in Angie's house, which is awesome. Um, and Angie is a climate scientist, and you teach. What is it that? What is it? You teach climate science, right? Or is there another name for it? Um, no, I teach climate science. Yeah, yeah at the right. University of Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And after our last conversation, I think we were both kind. I think I had the same feeling. We never really talked about it together, but like we we talked about the optimistic, basically, side of things. Um, and you know, not wanting to hit people over the head with the scary things that they've heard over, we've heard over and over. But I actually don't know that everybody has heard those scary things, <laughs> or in a way that they can digest, or, or from a source that they can trust. So I don't. I think it might be a good idea to kind of just talk about what we're really up against and what the dangers are, and just whatever way you think makes sense. So, what do you think, Angie? Okay. Well, so I'll I'll start with what I was just telling you about, yeah. which is I I came away from that last conversation thinking, wow, am I really that optimistic about the future? You know, um, I part of me is, but I, the scientist in me says, well, you know, really um, to borrow a line from Hans Rosling, and if you haven't seen his TED talks, you should. Uh, he says. When people ask him about the future, he says, uh, well, you know, I'm not an optimist, but I'm also not a pessimist. I'm an extreme possibilist. And, um, and I agree with, you know, that's the scientific view right. and it's the um, reality. So, so it's not a matter of whether we're hopeful or not. It's a matter of whether it can be done, and it can be done, right. um, but but getting the work done is going to require a lot of that said work on everyone's part. Um, on our part, the you know, the citizens, we need to get our leaders to understand that we mm-hmm. want action on this. Uh, there's a a really important meeting coming up in Paris in December where the negotiations um, are really going to come to a head. There the have United, been United Nations. The United Nations um, Conference of the Parties. It's the 21st time that the, since, what, 1980, 1992, that they've come together. And, uh, and this is the final meeting to get a treaty or some kind of a international agreement on action. Uh, on this issue, and there is no so-called plan B for this. It's mm-hmm. going to have to get done. Right. Um, so it's up to us to make sure our leaders know what we want. Um, you know, hopefully before December. <laughs> wow. So we have we right now. It's as I'm recording this. It's the end of August. So we have a few months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. And I, I think I really appreciate what you said, uh, the, the Hans Rosling, did I say his name right? Yeah. Quote, well, uh, I, I don't know. It's Danish, so right, it so might be something like some that. odd way of saying it. But, <laughs> but anyway, the, the idea of it's not a matter of optimism or pessimism. It's, it's what's possible. And, and what I like about when I look at all the facts around climate change it's entirely possible that we could do this, but 
one of the hugest things that stands in our way is that we don't, or many of us don't believe it's possible. And it doesn't seem like it's, if the, the effort seems overwhelming, if, especially if you don't think you can do it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so one, I, let's, let's talk about like, we talked just like last month or something, but there's stuff in the news all the time about, well, now they're saying this or, you know, meaning they, meaning you, the climate scientists, right? So what, what is, do you have a sense of changing landscape of what you know as, as in climate science? It just what's the cutting edge right now? Well, with, with respect to what? Well, <laughs> there are anything. always new papers coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, every week I get right. emails from Science and Nature and Journal of Climate with yeah. new research. And so what strikes you, I guess? There's, yeah, there's, there's always new mm. information um, about on, on the... But I think you're asking, is there uh, anything really new on the cutting edge of what's going to make a difference for climate negotiations mm, well, or for just glo- in any way global and, warming right just what what we understand and what we're seeing yeah you know. so james hansen who is very mm-hmm. famous yeah. the former chief science climate scientist at nasa he's retired now um has just published an open access journal article well, it's actually still in review, um, but it's notable because he he wanted to get this mm-hmm. this article out in the public sphere before Paris, mm-hmm. before the meeting in Paris. And in order to do so, he published in in this new online journal where they publish the article open access, and then it is openly reviewed. Anyone can go to the journal and oh. comment on it, mm-hmm. but there are also authorized um, reviewers that are climate scientists. And so you can read the reviews of the article as they're coming in. So in any case, James Hansen has written this article, and and it made a big splash in the news because he's suggesting that um, that even 2 degrees C... If, if the temperature change increase of 2 degrees C is, if we achieve that, um, we can still have substantial changes in ice loss at the poles and thereby sea level change. So he's looking, he's been looking at past climates in Earth's history mm-hmm. and how much sea level rise you get for a certain amount of warming. So, you know, there are ways that we can look at the rock record and sediment, ocean sediments, and and see how much CO2 there was in the past, Mm -hmm. how much warmer the temperature was, and how high sea levels were. Now, let me just clarify one thing you said right at the beginning. Two degrees Celsius, if we achieve that, meaning if we achieve... Keeping it down to two degrees, the increase. But right now, where we're are we at, at one degree. Okay, we're at one degree C, give or take a couple few tenths. And I mean, and and also things that have happened already are basically in the pipeline of heating things up. Like like if we stopped using carbon right now, we'd still be getting warmer for a period of time, right? Yeah, we'd probably get at least another half degree C. Oh, okay. Um, just from the pipeline, maybe mm-hmm. three quarters. 
of a degree C from okay. what's in the system. Wow. Um, but the question, so, you know, the international, the scientific community came up with this mm-hmm. value of two degrees C mm-hmm. um, as above that is thought to be so-called dangerous le- level And is that what corresponds with 350 parts per million? Or is um, that not Well, a so that's, you know, all of these things are a little bit questionable. Okay. Um, in the intergovernmental panel, they talk about 450 degrees, um, 450 parts per million as in CO2, 450 to 500 Now, the intergovernmental panel consists of climate scientists? Is, yeah, the intergovernmental okay. panel on climate change is a body of scientists um, that have been authorized by the UN Framework Convention on Climate okay, Change. Right. And they are the, so it's the IPCC, that's the acronym. Right, right. Um, and they generate the assessments every six to seven years of our state of the climate okay. system, our, our state of understanding okay. of the climate system. So now you're saying they're saying we can get up to 450 and still stay? Well, maybe so, <laughs> so the IPCC yeah. is a, you know, it's a few thousand scientists around the world mm-hmm. who are reviewing the science. And so what comes out in the reports is a, a fairly conservative view reading the literature where you have to have a consensus of all those scientists and it also goes through a governmental review by before it's published so the governments involved and that's all the un governments they can't change the science right but they can you know um add emphasis to things and and part of the in in only in the not in the report but in the executive summary okay. so the the political influence comes in the right so for people who aren't used to academic papers an executive summary is basically at the head of this long complicated detailed piece of of research and explanation is like a paragraph or two or maybe a page or two. I don't know how long the, that is. The executive but. summary is really just outlining the highlights right. of okay. the, the. So report. it's basically saying it's basically the the crib notes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and so and so the, if they can. So the the governments of the world in the final bef- prior to the final release of the report get to review the executive summary mm-hmm. and they can um, add emphasis or you know have some influence there. They can't change the science. Mm-hmm. But um, but what's important about that, the mm-hmm. reason that that is such a critical step yeah. is that that process, um, by going through that process, all the governments in the UN, so China, India, I mean, every last one of them has agreed to what's in the report okay Okay. so there is no government involved in the un that has not agreed to what's in the report okay and so in a sense they're they've bought into it they right at their highest levels have said we endorse this report 
Okay. And and so that's part of the IPCC process. Okay. Um, I forgot where we were, though, why we were talking about the IPCC. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. But it's all good information for us to have. And I'm now I'm embarrassed for anyone listening who knows exactly why we started on the subject. But it'll come up. Yeah. It'll come up again. So... I think, well, I know that we we were back to 2 degrees and 450. Right. right. Okay, so 2 degrees. So the IPCC, or the, the, yeah, the international community in the UN and the UN um, agreed to um, 2 degrees C being the dangerous threshold. And that's associated in the report. There isn't a clear... Val, you know, specific value that of um, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere that's related to 2 degrees C. There are only, you know, bracketed amounts. And the IPCC has been talking about somewhere between 350 and 500 parts per million. Oh. Now, James Hansen has written papers, and that's how he started this, okay. has written papers saying... Well, the IPCC, so he's, um, you can even either call him more conservative or more radical, <laughs> depending on your perspective. Right. But uh, he, his research looking at Earth's past climates and the relationship between CO2 and temperature and sea level rise has been suggesting that 350 parts per million is the level that we should be right. working towards, okay. whereas the IPCC has ha- has discussed a higher range, okay. okay, and so 450 to 500 parts per million mm. as acceptable levels, okay, um, and and the whole organization 350.org that was started by Bill McKibben right. um, was from this work by James Hansen, okay, so. Um, Bill McKibben saw James Hansen's work and I'm sure is friends with him and said, wait a minute, the IPCC is, you know, n- not being conservative enough mm-hmm. with our planet. Right. We need to hold things even lower. Mm-hmm. And um, and so James Hansen's most recent paper that is still under review in this online journal is looking at this in more detail and saying, you know, the two degree C threshold is probably too high if we really want to maintain a stable climate. There are a number of dangerous things that can happen even with a two degree C change. Right. And he's, you know, relating this to Earth's past climate and what um, he has understood to be occurring during the previous interglacial periods, how much sea level rise there was for how much temperature increase. And, and, and also, I think, now I haven't read that paper thoroughly, so I'm not an expert on it by okay. any means, but I think he's also talking about the rate at which it can change, sea level can change, and he's suggesting that sea levels could increase um, significantly more than one meter within the next hundred years. Mm. So um, 
really sea level rise is the impact that will affect everyone, mm-hmm. no matter where you are. You know, most people are living in cities already, and there's a trend to have, you know, 80% of the population living in the cities by 2050. Mm-hmm. And so if, if we have any significant sea level rise, um, it's going to be a major catastrophe mm-hmm. for, you know, this, just this, think about the cities in the U.S. that are coastal. Right. All the big ones really are. Um, so, so there are very serious consequences well, yeah, of sea level rise happening faster than we might think it right. would. And besides cities, there's also farmland that would become salt water, you know, even if it's not constantly underwater, right. <laughs> um, you're going to get salt on the, on the farmland and, and that, you know, and then you can't grow food there. So there's, there's those kind of consequences as well. Right. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. I don't know how big of a, how much of the farmland is on coast, but maybe in Australia it's a very big deal. Yeah, I yeah. I, <laughs> I don't actually know where it is in Australia. Well, I know that uh, I think most, uh, from what I understand, most about of Australia, Australia is a desert, so right. it's the coastal regions yes, that, that have, are, oops, yeah, yeah, that are that are, um, more, you know, where the the people live basically. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's interesting because. Um, so the the thing with sea level rise is that's one of the, and, and sea level rise is related to how fast the ice sheets melt in mm-hmm. Greenland and Antarctica yeah. because those are the two big blocks of ice that right. are on land, and um, and and the science, our scientific understanding of those ice sheets and how quickly they are moving and breaking and melting is not very good. Mm. We are starting, there are models Mm -hmm. of the ice sheets themselves now that are built into the climate models, Um, but they're still pretty primitive Mm -hmm. and just the scientific understanding of them is not very good. So there's always new research coming out of, oh, so-and-so has done this and they understand this glacier in Greenland is moving faster and and there's water under the ice sheets and there's earthquakes going on in the ice sheets. And so, you know, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that things are moving more quickly than than we understood them Mm -hmm. to move. Um, A decade ago, the the best thinking said that it would take thousands of years to melt Greenland and then even longer for West Antarctica. But I don't think, I think that there is more evidence to say that things might be faster than that. As far as the next hundred years, no, that is an argument that's playing out right now in Mm -hmm. this journal to see. uh, No one's saying that the entire thing is going to go, but I think the question, and it's it's subtle but really important, Mm -hmm. is... At what point do those ice sheets um, enter the stage of irreversibility, right? right? So at what point do they start? It's like a train, yeah. right? And once that thing is moving at speed, it's, 
you can't stop it, even if you turn down CO2. Mm -hmm. So that's really the question is how quickly do we get to this, to this state of irreversible change in the Mm -hmm. ice sheets? And, um, and the range of like serious scientific argument there is from X to what? I mean, well, you know, so again, I'm not an ice sheet expert. Yeah. So once you get to irreversibility, does that, can it, does that come before or after you have like four meters of sea level rise? (laughs) You know, we've got something like 20 meters of sea level rise just from Greenland alone. Mm-hmm. So it's the question is, how much are you going to get in the next 80 years? I see. And, and it's, that's a very, very difficult question, mm-hmm. right? I, how, how do you sort that out? Yeah. One thing that's always scared me is the idea that if Greenland melts, then there's more methane, which then means there's more... Um, so I don't know Greenhouse how much gas. methane there is in Greenland mm. per se. I don't think anyone yeah. probably really knows, but what, there's certainly yeah. a lot of methane in Arctic permafrost mm-hmm. and around the Arctic Ocean so in just the seafloor. So just to explain for people who don't yeah. know, so methane is one of the greenhouse gases, um, and it's released by decaying matter basically right or mm-hmm. and 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 so um that's and natural gas that's what 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 all of our carbon carbon fuels are coming from or from decaying living things um and so what i had heard was that like greenland is basically frozen organic matter that like there used to be yeah. um before, when it was warmer there, there were plants and stuff, and then it got cold and everything froze right. and sort of melted and froze and sort of started to decay, but then it got it colder and colder, and so it froze, froze, froze. So now as it melts, then there's the fear that there will be a lot of methane gas off-gassing from Greenland. Okay. So, and and, and yeah. you were saying also from the Arctic, the area. Right, the so the, anywhere where there's mm-hmm. permafrost, yeah. um, there is likely right. to be a substantial mm-hmm. amount of methane, yeah. which will eventually oxidize to CO2. Yeah. But while it's still methane, it's a, even a more powerful mm-hmm. greenhouse gas. But, you know, like, in a sense, like, we can get deep into this, and, I, and you do, because this is what you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but there's, like, a, a point, I come to a point sometimes where I, I find myself thinking, like, I think it's important to understand it and to, for there to be people going deep there but in general like in our common consciousness as humans on the planet like we just need to get the point that it's we don't have unlimited resources and that this whole planet is a system inter like there's it's like a domino series that goes around in a cycle and everything depends on everything else and we can't cut down all the trees (laughs) we can't burn all the fossil fuels and we you know mm-hmm. like there comes and and that that no group of people is more important than another group of people so that we can't justify any longer the idea of sacrifice zones where right. you know where we have we where we put our trash and our pollution and um you know kick people off the land so we can dig it up and get something out out from underneath so what are your thoughts about that angie well <laughs> um I guess 
I guess we, yeah, we can talk a lot about the details of the science, and I love doing that because that's what I do. Um, But really, as scientists, we've been talking about it already for 30 years. And really what we need to be doing is getting beyond this part of the conversation and moving to the what are we going to do about it part, Mm -hmm. um, which I'm not an expert on, but everything I understand about it says we have this blazing ball of fusion, you know, 93 million miles away from us that provides enough energy that would power our civilization, you know, 10 gajillion times per day. Mm -hmm. Um, so what we need to do is make use of that. And we can. And the, the brilliant thing is that we are already and the technology is available and it is the price is coming down very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely no reason why we can't solve this. Mm-hmm. We have the technology to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, did we talk about the whatever, a Tesla Powerwall last time, because that had so. just come out. Um, but, what but, about it? Well, so, do you know about it? Have you heard? No. So, um, um, like, who's the guy who started Tesla? The, the electric car company. Um, I want to think of his name. I'll get it. I'll, I'll look it up. Tesla, um... It's a famous guy. He did. He's done a whole bunch of things. He started eBay. Oh, I don't have any internet. eBay? No, <laughs> PayPal. He started PayPal. Oh, yeah. Oh, here it. we go. Elon okay. Musk. Elon Musk, of course. Okay, so tell okay. me about the Tesla wall. <laughs> right, so Elon Musk did a, a press release sometime in the past few months. Uh-huh. He's a young a press guy. Conference. I'm looking at his picture online. Yeah, he is. Um, where he is talking about the their new product, which is a, a basically a storage device for electricity. Okay. And um, the the idea is that so lots of people have solar panels now, mm-hmm. um, but but even those who have solar panels, if there is a power outage, which has happened here a number of times, yeah. they can't use their solar power. Oh, really? Because you're, if you're connect, you're connected to the grid, mm. and um, in a power outage, everything gets shut down, mm. including because you can't, the grid can't handle it, so you have to turn off your your solar panels. Okay. Um, and so, so it's like totally defeats the purpose of having <laughs> solar panels. So what you what they need is store a storage device, right? Uh-huh. That's one of the really important aspects of a viable renewable energy plan Mm -hmm. is to be able to store the energy that you get from the sun or the wind or whatever. And so in the Tesla company, they have developed this storage device that um, is now they're selling them for residential use. You can buy a Tesla Powerwall and it's not this big ugly industrial box it's actually a beautiful thing to look at you can hang it as artwork on your wall Mm. and it 
will can set up you can set it up with your power your solar panels or your windmill or whatever and um and use it as storage and then if there's a power outage you can just turn off your your part of the grid and you're good to go so So nice (laughs) so and, and because the sun isn't shining all the time you're always have energy available Right, right. I so didn't realize that. The, that I, I mean, I know that people plug into the grid, but I didn't know that you couldn't. That you, I mean, that you couldn't really manage it without doing so. And I guess it makes sense because sometimes you need more power, and sometimes right. you're feeding into the grid. Or exactly, because right. the sun, you know, it's a diurnal cycle, so yeah. you get sun, you get the energy during yeah. daylight hours, and right. then you're, you know, using it at night or right. whatever. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. And then there's, there's so many, um, and I wish I retained these little snippets better. So many little like statistical pieces that are hopeful around the idea of like, this is clearly something we can do in terms of, re- you know, resource allocation. And like you were saying, the sun providing all the world's power usage. It's like if 14, you totaled it up. 14 terawatts is the amount from the sun and I think we use like a tiny fraction of that. Right. I mean, and we I, depend on all the other things on the planet that are using it too, like trees and yeah. <laughs> plants, but but still the point is that there's so much sunlight can offer in terms of power and right. we know how to harness that and there's wind as well and Right. I mean, know. the between the amount in right. for North America, mm-hmm. you know, the Wind just from the Great Plains could power North America, mm. but Texas could also power North America just with its sunlight. Wow. And the American Southwest could power North America. We've got plenty of energy. There's no wow. question about it. It's just, the questions are how do how are we going to store it? How are we going to get it to where it needs to be? You know, but we can we can generate our own power here in right. New England. Germany is generating thirty yeah. percent of its right. electricity from from solar right. panels, and they don't even mm-hmm. have any sun. Yeah. So, we. Right. I think distributed generation is going to be important, mm-hmm. and and some of these larger, more concentrated power things, and we can do it without probably without nuclear, without, yeah. you know, we don't need any of that. We just need to focus mm-hmm. and get this done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another statistical thing that people talk about is um, how much money goes into military spending around the world and how much money it would take to to completely convert 100% away from carbon fuels, and it's so much less <laughs> we yeah. spend on military, so... Oh yeah, the I mean the IPCC did the calculation oh, yeah. of how much it would cost mm-hmm. and it's like, you know, less than 2% of the global economy. Wow. You know, it's not I mean it's it's big numbers but yeah. it's not crazy numbers. Right. right. Yeah. It's entirely doable. So, here's a question. I don't even know that it it makes sense because I don't know how often you get to do this, but the question is when you're hanging out with your, uh, with your climate science friends, what is, what are your conversations like? Do you guys talk about this stuff or do you put it aside and only talk about it in the lab? I mean, what do you, I'm just very curious to know 
sort of like peeking under the hood of science <laughs> do we talk about well i mean we talk about science a lot yeah. right um but um, often it's the more specific kinds of things that yeah. we're working on right. right and every once in a while you know we might talk about these kind of mm-hmm. bigger issues or the fact that people don't understand you know how much agreement there is in the science mm-hmm. the other thing to note is that within climate science everyone at this point pretty much understands and the problem and mm-hmm. and there's no question about the the basic consensus mm-hmm. but scientists don't all work on this issue yeah. right they they work on their specific topics of interest and if you're not teaching mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um like if i wasn't teaching my classes of undergraduates about global warming i probably wouldn't be following in as much detail mm. what's going on with negotiations or in the right. public sphere understanding of this and um and so there are a lot of you know working climate scientists that just you know they they read the news the same as you or I do but they don't necessarily follow all mm-hmm. the details of of what's going on in the public sphere mm-hmm. and so i've certainly run across scientists who are really good and they even get involved in some of the public discourse but they don't follow the public discourse mm-hmm. and so they can say things sometimes that are not helpful, I'm like, right? <clears throat> for example, or just even if it's, even if it's vague. I don't want to. Yeah, yes, I, I'll I have to be vague. But <clears throat> but let's so let's say that you know there there are always questions about whether you know was this. Um, severe weather storm oh, caused, caused by, by global warming, right. right? And so there are lots of, there's lots of research being done mm-hmm. that that actually can look at an individual event. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it's perfect at this point, but um, there are different ways to, to do that problem and to try to understand if the probability of that event changed because of the increased warming or increased humidity mm-hmm. from greenhouse gas warming. Yeah. And um, and so let's say you get a result from that and, and it says that, well, the probability changed by 20%, mm-hmm. right? You could say okay. something like this. Yeah. And so um, one way of... of going to the public to talk about this is to say, well, 80% of this was, you know, natural variability. Hmm. Okay. And then another way of saying it is, well, there's already been a 20% shift and increase in this type of event due to greenhouse warming. And so, and so what, what we've had in the past are people who are taking exactly this information and one person saying it to the media from that 80% perspective and another mm-hmm. person saying it 
from the 20% perspective. And they're both saying exactly the same thing. And they're both right. It's just the emphasis. Right. And so, and, but the public doesn't interpret them the same way, right? right? Mm -hmm. The public says, oh, 80% natural. Oh, we don't have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And so, so this is where it gets kind of fuzzy. So, so I think that both scientists are correct and both scientists know exactly what they're talking about, but maybe one doesn't understand how the public interprets these things quite as well mm -hmm. as the other, mm -hmm. you know? Interesting. And, and you know, and I, that reminds me, because I just heard maybe in the last week, some news story, I didn't read the story, I just heard the headline, and it was just basically saying, they're now saying that definitely the, um, the drought in California has been made worse by global warming. Yeah. And, and I find myself, I don't really understand why this, why that's even a question. To me, it's like, it's warmer, things evaporate more. <laughs> of course, it's made right. worse. But so am I wrong? No, I mean, you're absolutely right. Okay. You know, so then why is that just now, definitely, the science is in? Because, because scientists are that way. They, mm -hmm. it's, it's not enough just to, to, just to say, oh, the temperatures are increasing and evaporation is increasing, and so um, the drought will be worse. Uh, they have to be able to demonstrate it by modeling, by wow. observations, by something. Mm -hmm. That's the way science works. Okay. Um, so, you know, people, people like Kevin Trenberth yeah. at NCAR have been saying for years, mm -hmm. you know, the question of attribution of an individual event to climate mm -hmm. change is asking the wrong question. Right. Right? You don't need to even ask that question mm -hmm. because the basic underlying state of the climate system is changing. And so really the question is, to what extent is this new state responsible? You know, it's not, is this climate change or is it not climate mm -hmm. change? It's how much of this is climate change. And in most cases, it's some part of it yeah. because... Because the underlying state yeah. of the climate system is different. It's right. warmer. It's more moist. There's higher temperatures, cause more evaporation, all of those yeah. things that you said. So, um, so it is a factor. But what science does is it wants to quantify mm -hmm. how much of a factor mm -hmm. it is. And I guess... And that amount is, is going to be increasing. So I think that's one of the things that I probably didn't talk about much last time that I wanted to get across okay. now is that, so if we just think about the amount of greenhouse gases we've been putting into the atmosphere, I don't think, I think most people don't have a sense of how population has increased so exponentially just in the past 40 years. Right. So um, we've gone from, I should know the numbers, but it's something like in in the span of one lifetime, Hans Rosling talks about this. I think I heard it was this. something like in the last 50 years that there's five times as many people on the planet. It's something like that. Yeah. So um, it's doubled more than twice right. in the past 50 years. Mm -hmm. And um, 
And so it, that's, you know, super exponential growth. And so everything associated with human beings has been increasing exponentially. Everything from scientific journal articles to, mm. you know, industrial production to CO2 um, emissions mm. into the atmosphere to you name it. Right. Books being Con- written, mm-hmm. everything. Food, food being consumed, all kinds of consumption. Right. right. Consumption and production mm-hmm. has been increasing exponentially. Yeah. And fossil fuels have really allowed this to happen, yeah. which is not, you know, you can take your point of view on it, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. It has allowed our civilization mm-hmm. to grow right. the way that it has. Um, but so so if, if we think about this last 40 years um, and the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere, it's really only in the last, since then, you know, since this kind of growth spurt mm-hmm. has happened, that the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere has increased so much that now it is the largest forcing in the system. Mm. So we can see it clearly now because in with compared to other kicks to the climate, mm-hmm. it's the biggest one. Mm. There's enough CO2 there now that it's the dominant forcing. Um, if there's a big volcanic eruption, yeah. that might mute it out for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but it is the big player yeah. right now. And 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 there's no sign of it stopping, right? So all systems are still go. Yeah. Um, population is still increasing. Consumption is still increasing. And so what we're going to see in the next 50 years is really continued growth on all fronts Mm -hmm. and that's the the big concern it's right now what we're seeing is just the tip of the so-called iceberg of climate change we're only beginning to see the effects what we expect to see as as the temperature ramps up are much bigger changes and we're going to see some of those no matter what because they're built into the system because of inertia. But what we're trying to avoid by taking action now mm-hmm. are those big changes that are catastrophic, right? There are, there's very serious potential for catastrophic change decades down the pipeline if we don't take action now. And the reason we have to do it now and not later is that it takes decades to transform our energy system. It's not going to happen overnight. And if we wait another 20 or 30 years before we do it, it will be too late. Mm -hmm. Those catastrophic changes will then be built in. So I heard the other day we have 10 years now to turn it around. Does that mean... Ten? Have you heard that as well? Like, yeah. I, I mean, everyone is that. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, you know, um, the scientific community has been saying, you know, we really need to do this by the year two thousand. We really need to do this by twenty ten. We really need to do this by twenty fifteen, and and so we're not there yet, right? Mm-hmm. But but ultimately, what we have is. We, have, we can't think short time scales here. What we have to say is we need to be at net zero carbon, right? We need 
80 to 100% reduction in our fossil fuel carbon emissions by 2050. How are we going to get there mm. by 2050? So that gives us time, yeah. right? But how are we going to get there? If we do more now, it can be a more incremental change. If we started 10 years ago, it could have been even easier. Mm -hmm. If we started 20 years ago, we would be halfway there already, right? right? But now we're waiting, we're waiting. And so that means we have to do more between Mm -hmm. now and 2050. Mm -hmm. And so the longer we wait, the more we have to do, but there's going to be a point where it's not going to be possible. Right. So I don't like to give deadlines of, you know, are, are there tipping points in the system that we're already reaching or beyond? I don't know enough yeah. about the ice sheets to be able to tell mm-hmm. you that. Mm-hmm. All I know is the sooner we start, the easier it's going to be to get it done. Yeah. And the more likely it is that we actually will get it done. Mm-hmm. And is the recommendations, is it the IPCC or IPPC? ICC. IPCC. IPCC. Is there, do they talk in their, in that paper that, you know, that with the, <laughs> with the um, politicized um, abstract? Oh. Yeah. Um, oh, about it's not. Limits and times and. Yeah, goals, absolutely. Right? So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their, um, the fifth assessment report came out a year and a half ago. And it is three volumes. Each volume is like, you know, well, that's a like few thousand four pages. Four inches thick. Yeah. Things. So if you stack these three volumes, it's like this much paper. So like a, now your your hands are like nine inches apart. Yeah. Almost a ruler length of paper. Yeah, three quarters of a ruler, <laughs> okay. right? Nine inches. Yeah. Um, it's it's a substantial document. Mm-hmm. The executive summary is like forty pages. Okay. Of that. Yeah. So. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so and the. The the report, the assessment that's done, has there are three sections to it. Yeah. There's the physical science, mm-hmm. the you know physical science basis of climate change. That's the greenhouse gases. It's the climate models. It's the um, understanding Earth's past climate. All the all of our understanding of the physical climate system. Mm-hmm. The second part of the report is about. Um, the impacts of climate change on water systems, on um, food systems, on ecosystems, on human systems. So it's looking more at how climate change is already affecting, being observed in like the timing of flowering of things Mm -hmm. and bird migrations and all of that but also how it has been affecting water systems and and transporting and all all of this other stuff Mm -hmm. um so so it the second one is about impacts and then the third volume is about mitigation and policy okay and that's where all the economists and Mm -hmm. people who are looking at how do we deal with this problem, um, it's the research on that, mm. on what policies can be used to help reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, what effect would they have, when do they need to start, how, you know, 
carbon pricing, how, what kind of price do you need on carbon in order to make this happen? Mm -hmm. And so really, you know, if we're talking to people who are interested in this, the single most effective way to deal with this in our current economic system is to put a price on carbon. We need to put a price on it. There are different ways to do that. You can do it with a cap and trade system, which is like what we did for sulfur dioxide in the, from power plants mm -hmm. in the Northeast to reduce um, acid rain. Um, there are different perspectives on how um, beneficial that yeah. has been. But the other method, which, which actually most economists are behind, is a carbon tax. Yeah. And, and that is the simplest, cleanest way yeah. to do it. It can be done. There are groups that are looking at how to do this um, in, in countries around the world. And then they have to, you know, every country would implement their own carbon tax. And then there's some way to, like, um, mesh them at an international level that mm -hmm. makes things just mm -hmm. and fair mm -hmm. um, to those who haven't admitted very much yet and are still developing. Right. So, so there are ways to do it. it they're pretty well understood. It yeah. can be done. Mm -hmm. That can be done. Yeah. Um, you know, in the U.S., they say, oh, Americans won't accept a tax. But I argue, yes, they will. <laughs> Just get over it. Yeah. You, can, you can implement a tax that is... Um, so-called revenue neutral, right? So it's not an additional tax burden, but it takes the place of other taxes mm -hmm. like payroll taxes or, you know, other taxes. Why are we taxing things that are good and not taxing things that are bad? Right? Yeah, and subs we subsidize oil production and things like that. I mean, right. there's ways so, we can shift our... Right, so, <laughs> so those things all need to go away yeah. mm -hmm. and they're all part of the the tax code in a way. Mm -hmm. So um, we need to, yeah. we, in the past, the U.S. tax code would get revisited and, and cleaned up every, you know, 20 years or so. But it's been like 40 or 50 years since the last mm. revi serious revision of the tax code. It's oh. way overdue. Interesting. And, I didn't know that. And I think we need to just get over this yeah. tax thing and mm -hmm. do it right. So we're running out of time, but I, and and I I feel like this feels like, uh, potentially uncomfortable territory, but I would like to go into a little bit just uh, about I think some of us know it, but some people are still kind of getting their minds around climate change and why they should be paying attention and why they should be devoting time to it. Uh, so. Um, but um, the question is, what what are those dangerous outcomes? You know, like, in and you can it doesn't have to be a long detailed answer. But what is the thing? What are what are we trying to avoid? And I know it might seem like obvious, and it's a base yeah. that's been covered. But well, okay. So so as temper, you know, in a in a business as usual worst case scenario, um, temperatures are going to continue to increase. Um, and accelerate in their increase, right? So uh, the climate models project that by the end of the 21st century, the global average temperature 
could increase anywhere from, you know, two and a half to, let's say, six degrees C. And the median of that, right, or the mean, is pretty close to three and a half degrees C. So if you, if you listen to the discussions about climate change, um, there's often been, uh, most people will focus on the average increase of three and a half degrees C. And we've already been talking about how Jim Hansen says two degrees C is already potentially dangerous. Um, but three and a half degrees C doesn't sound like a big number, right? Mm -hmm. We have swings in temperature. That ends up being, what, like six or seven degrees Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. globally average. So we have bigger swings in temperature between day and night. You yeah. know, why is this such a big deal? But we're talking about the global average, which shouldn't change very much. And, and six degrees C, the last time there was a six degrees C difference in temperature was the last glacial maximum when it was six degrees C colder, there was a mile of ice over our heads here in Connecticut. The wow. ice sheet was a mile thick here. Wow. So six degrees C is a big change right. in global average temperature. Um, so, so, but we're talking about six degrees C warmer. Right. And, and we're, you know, if you think about the kinds of heat waves that we've been having just with this, you know, one degree C increase, just think about what that would mean with six degrees. And the other thing is that we're, that's a global average change, right? So if we're mm -hmm. talking about um, three and a half degrees globally, that doesn't mean three and a half degrees C everywhere. Right. So In it fact, it's much larger changes as you go to higher latitudes. And where we live in the mid latitudes, it's more like four or five, maybe even six degrees C. And then at high latitudes, it gets even bigger still oh. at the poles. So, so three and a half degrees C global average temperature means significantly more than that here where we live. Mm-hmm. So four or five degrees C. Wait. And if you convert okay, that right. to Fahrenheit, right. it's more like 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And, and so, you know, we're talking about those are mean temperatures and then the extremes go beyond that. So we're going to have heat waves. The, you know, the, the models are right now we have here in Hartford, there's like, Three days above a hundred yeah, degrees. Yeah, you said this in the last one. We yeah. talked about how much there would be. Yeah, much so we're more, talking three about three months of it or something. Three months of right. temperatures above ninety yeah. and a month of temperatures above a hundred. Right. So we're talking about really, really significant increases mm -hmm. in yeah. heat waves, right. and all the things that go with that. So you know, pollen has gotten much worse. Asthma rates have mm -hmm. gotten much worse. So there's. A lot of health issues. Heat is very difficult for people to deal with, especially young mm -hmm. people and old people. And also, all of our vegetation is is has been evolving for a different climate. And so, as we lose cold winters, then we allow like pests to 
over would have died over the winter to stay alive and so a lot of forests are getting diseased and right forest fires are increasing and yeah and the like maple that. maple trees are going to be gone right from here they yeah. will be further north yeah and so you know and and so we can scientifically we can say that oh the maple forests are going to migrate mm-hmm. north but what happens in the meantime right we're going to have a lot of dead maple trees yeah. here and it's going to take a while for those mm-hmm. you know southern hardwoods yeah. to move in right. so it it could be a pretty you know tough transition mm-hmm. it's really all about the transition mm-hmm. and how we get through that right um if if we go through this worst case scenario yeah. I'm not. I'm not one of those people who are going to say that humans won't exist. Mm. Um, but it's going to be hard. Yeah. It would well, there'll be, be really hard. Yeah. There'll be less places where people can live. There's less places where we can grow food, and the like. Resources will be scarce and changing. And yeah, we are going to be. Our lifestyles are going to be changing right. <laughs> quite a bit. So that's <laughs> why we we're, we're talking about catastrophic climate change. Mm-hmm. It would be really in that sense of the word because the earth would move into a climate that is um, fundamentally different from the one we have our civilization has evolved in Mm -hmm. okay and the transition to that climate would be you know rife with trauma right And and we're talking about if i mean it's it's sort of happening some of it is happening now. Well, we're in the very tip of the iceberg stage, right? Okay. So, so we're we're beginning to see yeah. the signs of this because climate change is happening and we we can already see the signal of it, but it will be much much worse before right. it would get better. And it wouldn't get better, it would just be, you know, getting used to it. Right. Because for all intents and purposes, those changes are irreversible. Hmm. Um, it's another 50,000 years before we would naturally be in an ice age, 30 to Mm -hmm. 50,000, and the greenhouse gases would obliterate that. Okay. Wow. All right. On that note, (laughs) is there anything else that you would like to say? (laughs) Uh, So... If you're inclined to be active, do yeah. so. If you're not inclined to be active, be active anyway. Mm. Make sure your leaders know what you think mm. because we have negotiations coming up in Paris. Right, very soon. And get active locally. There's lots of things that yeah. we we already are doing and can be doing. Mm-hmm. And and you're showing the way for well, a lot of I that. hope so. I, I it would be great for me to talk with somebody who can talk about. Well, maybe this will be the next. My next pursuit will be a, a conversation about what can you do locally. What can you and starting from the very smallest thing, what you put in your body, how you take care of your home. Yeah, how we you just plug got in our your, walls insulated. We yeah. live in a house that's 1919. The wall right behind right. you had no insulation wow. in it. So we just did that that's a little late i think but finally Mm -hmm. we did it we're working on that in my house as well and i mean right down the street from me they're expanding the pipeline for the the algonquin natural gas um it's all fracked gas that's going through from pennsylvania 
um, through uh, several states. I think New York State has said, I can't remember, but it's already there. There's a pipeline that's already there, but they're expanding it. Mm. So this is there's a lot of activism going on around here. It's also in Massachusetts. And I think it may actually cut into Vermont, but I'm not sure about that. I think it's all headed to Boston Harbor so they can export um, mm. that gas. So there's activist things that can be done, and then there's just the, um, uh, just getting yourself on the simplest mailing lists, you know. And yeah, there's out. a Connecticut solar energy mailing list that okay. I'm on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can probably Google that and yeah. get on it. And, yeah. um, and I just saw that there's... Yeah, the president has a new thing on residential solar energy. Mm-hmm. Good. So, I mean, and then I think that's the place that's easiest to start is your own your own personal, the things you feel like you have control over. Mm-hmm. And then you can get on mailing lists of, of, um, of uh, organizations that are trying to take this on and then, you know, contribute to their efforts, either financially or through signing petitions or calling your congressman. And there, there's lots of people out there that are ready to hold your hand and guide you into being an active citizen. So mm-hmm. so it's not as overwhelming as it feels from the outset once you start to explore this information. So, But thank you for for clarifying the science once again. Oh, well, thank you for, <laughs> yeah. for having me. I look forward to the next conversation. Okay. Thanks, Andrew.